today, page 920, if you're using the Bibles here, Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19. If you can turn there in your Bibles or your phones, it will be projected, but you might want it out to refer to during the sermon. chapter 11. Let's begin our time with prayer. Dear Lord, we, we come to you today. We want to be directed in our lives in the way of truth. We know that truth is found in your word. So we look to you to, to feed us with your word, to teach us, to guide us. And we thank you that you do that. We pray for your spirit, Lord, to help us understand and to apply your word to our hearts and to help us to listen, Lord, and to think about uh, what we're being taught by your word. Bless our time of worship and lead us in your ways. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Acts chapter 11, beginning of verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed Turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. All right, so we just read, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So, here we have the beginning of the Christian church. And uh, listen, we have just reached the hinge of the book of Acts. And really not just the book of Acts, but the hinge of the whole history of God's people here. Because for thousands of years, if you wanted to know God, you had to become a Jew. 
then even if you became a Jew, right? We call them proselytes. Uh, people like, maybe you remember Rahab or Ruth or Naaman in the Old Testament. You still didn't have all the rights of a true descendant of Abraham. But, but now, the hinge, we come to an incredible shift in biblical history. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, but only those who have been cleansed by Jesus. We looked at this uh, last week and the week before as we, as we looked through chapter 11 of the book of Acts. Uh, and, and just verse 18, right before this text, uh, just to remind you, the early church says, they realize, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And then, you see in our text today, Luke proceeds to tell us about this new thriving church in Antioch. A church made up of Jews and Gentiles, where anyone who unites themselves to Jesus Christ can know God. This church is the first of its kind in all of history, but not the last. Uh, today, around the world, 2.6 billion people, that's about a third of the world's population, call themselves Christian. Uh, every year, uh, 93 million Bibles are handed out, are distributed around the world. And every year, 160,000 Christians, at least these are the most recent uh, figures, 160,000 are killed for following Jesus. And, and this global Christian church, in its, in, its, in its new covenant form, it begins here in our text with this fruitful Christian church in Antioch. So why is this church fruitful? That's what we're going to look at today. Why is this church fruitful? What do we see here in this text that shows us its fruitfulness? Uh, we'll look at a couple reasons. But first and foremost... This church is fruitful because the hand of the Lord is with them. And so that's my first point, the hand of the Lord. Now, uh, notice as we enter this text, it actually goes back in time. And again, if you've not been following along with us in our study through Acts, this might not be immediately obvious to you, but it heads back in time and just tells us how did the gospel get to this city of Antioch? How did it get here, okay? And so uh, after Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, was killed in Acts chapter 8, there's this great persecution in Jerusalem, and the believers are scattered. They're poured out over the map. They're dispersed. And uh, it turns out here, we're told, that some made it as far north as the city of Antioch. Um, verse 19, some of them only spoke to the Jews. They only spoke to the Jews. Uh, and we're not told um, that the hand of the Lord was with them, are we? We're, we're not really told whether their work was fruitful or not. If it was anything like what we see in the rest of Acts, the Jewish communities were not usually receptive. But, verse 20, right? Some of them spoke to the Hellenists also. Some of them spoke to the Hellenists. Now, this word Hellenist, that's a, a, it's a tricky word because it, all it basically means is someone who speaks Greek or 
lives in a Greekish way. They have Greek customs or dress or something like that. It, it doesn't actually tell you anything about the nationality of the person. It doesn't tell you whether these people are, are Jews or Gentiles. You have to figure that out based on what's around, based on the context. And so when we actually saw this word earlier in the book of Acts, we saw it in, in Jerusalem. We said that it referred to uh, Jews, right? But here, uh, but here, these people are contrasted with Jews, right? Some people only spoke to Jews, but in contrast, other people also spoke to people who are not Jews. Uh, and so Hellenists here must mean Greek-speaking Gentiles, Greek-speaking Gentiles. And Many of these believers, many of these Gentiles, they, they come to belief. Because why? Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord is with them. And so what we need to recognize as the foundation of all fruitfulness, right? We're looking at this fruitful church. The foundation is the hand of the Lord hand of the Lord. This, this first point, this is not like the other points we're going to see in this text. If God's hand is not present, there is no fruit. There is no church. There are no Christians. What does it mean that God's hand is with them. I mean, some of you kids maybe are saying, uh, Pastor Ash, God's a spirit. He doesn't have a hand. And you're correct, right? He does not have a physical hand. But when we read in the Bible that God's hand is present, it is a picture that tells us God is active in this world. He is doing something. He's moving things. He's touching people. He's comforting people. He's drawing people. He's crushing people. He acts, right? The book of Acts is not about the acts of the apostles. It's about the acts of God through the apostles. This is a picture of sovereignty, of agency, and power. Uh, what kind of God do you have? You have a God who puts his hand on the earth and moves things, and moves things. Right from the beginning here in this text, God reminds us that his church does not grow because of skill and wisdom. Uh, we are called to be skillful and wise, of course, but that is not the basis for growth. The basis for growth is the power of the Lord's hand at work in the world. We must start here. It is one of the most glorious and humbling things about being a believer. We would like to know the secret formula to make things happen, right? Five steps to uh, bring change into our life, to bring growth, to bring growth in our church, right? Uh, what do I have to do to just make it happen? But no, not without the Lord's hand. Do not claim to believe in God, to give him lip service, but then live as if you are actually in charge. You can make things happen. That's not how this works. The world does not revolve around you. It does not revolve around us. It's a big, big world, and that would be terrifying if there was no strong hand that could move things. 
But there is a hand that moves things. Remember, Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive. He acts for his people, for his church. And we submit ourselves to his strong hands. Will you rest in those hands today, children of God? We build these houses out of all our doubts and anxieties and our questions and all these doubts and these fears. They all flow from what we might or could or should or maybe should do when it is the presence of the hand of God that is decisive. And what does the Lord say about how his hand works in your life? Yes, that his hand acts in your life for your good. Rest there to begin. Don't jump right into, but but what can I do? How do I succeed? What should I? Just rest. The Lord's strong hand is on the earth to act. That truth is the foundation for our action. So, resting in the Lord's hand, what actions do these believers in Antioch take? Well, they talk about Jesus, right? They talk about Jesus. So that will be my second point, talking about Jesus. And, you know, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this point. We just want to notice first, you know, who is speaking? Who, is, who are the evangelists here? They're just anonymous Christians, right? There, there's no apostles here. There's no deacons no church structure. There's no specially trained evangelists. Believe me, they did not get classes on evangelism before they got chased out of Jerusalem by persecution. They weren't told, oh, this is how you tell people about Jesus. They, they I mean, we know they're from Cyprus and Cyrene. Okay, so we have a little bit. Uh, they're not totally anonymous. Uh, and, and what would that mean, right? They're dispersion Jews who have been used to living in a Gentile world. They know how to talk to people who are uh, different. They can relate and even speak to these Greek-speaking Gentiles that they're evangelizing. But this is not rocket science, and these are not rocket scientists, which is sometimes how we can make evangelism feel. We have to deprofessionalize the idea of evangelism. That's, that's just not what the Bible teaches us. Uh, trained pastors who help the church mature, that's a biblical model. We see that uh, in, the, in the scripture. We'll see that actually in this text in just a minute. But over and over again, the most effective outreach is done by believers who just talk about their Lord. And, and along with this, just notice what they talk about. Uh, the end of verse 20, they preach the Lord Jesus. Again, not rocket science. I mean, I, you could, of course, make this more complicated uh, if you wanted to, but what does this look like sort of in a basic way, at a basic level, right? Here's this guy, Jesus. Uh, here's how he lived. Here's what he did that makes him Lord, okay? He died. He resurrected. Follow him, and when he comes back, he'll take you home. Right? We make evangelism way too hard because we, uh, we need to be able to answer every question. Right? We put that burden upon ourselves. 
where we need to defend every doubt, you know, uphold the Bible, explain the Trinity, address the moral ethical questions of a pagan, a pagan culture. And, and look, if you can engage in those issues, great, but just start with Jesus. It's not you that people need to accept. It's Jesus. But now as we turn to verses 22 to 26, we see something new going on uh, in this uh, church in Antioch. They, they keep growing. And how do they grow? They grow under good leadership. And so my third point, growing under good leadership. Now the Bible describes church leaders, leaders of churches, as gifts to the church. And their goal is to equip uh, believers for the work of ministry and to build them up into maturity, uh, help them understand uh, the Bible and their faith. And we saw this when we looked at the book of Ephesians last summer. Um, and sure enough, as we look at this text, a critical part of the fruitfulness, the growth of this church in Antioch are these two leaders that, that are described, uh, Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so Barnabas is sent to Antioch by the church in Jerusalem. He's this, he's a gift. He's a spiritual gift to them, given to them from the church, their mother church in Jerusalem. And, and just to remind you about Barnabas, again, if you haven't been following in, in our, our series, Barnabas is, he's actually from Cyprus. Maybe he knew some of these evangelists. We're told some of these anonymous guys were from Cyprus. So maybe he knew some of them. We don't know. Uh, Acts chapter 4, he is one of the first Christians to, give, to sell a field and, and give all the proceeds to the apostles so that they can help those in need. So he's, he's known as a generous, a generous man. Uh, and, uh, you know, his name, Barnabas, it's actually a nickname that the apostles gave him. It, it means son of encouragement. He's an encourager. That's his thing. That's his gift. That's what he's known for, encouraging people. And then, and then finally, don't forget that in, in Acts chapter 9, Saul, right, the great persecutor of the church. Everybody knows Saul is the guy who, who approved the execution of Stephen and who ravaged the church. That's who they, so he comes back to Jerusalem claiming to have converted, and nobody wants to hang out with him. But Barnabas believes. He's like, I believe that God can change this guy. He has the courage to go see him and the vision to bring him to the apostles, knowing that the Lord has a, a, a ministry for this Saul guy. Uh, I, I remember a man, even in my own life, who started encouraging me and finding me opportunities to grow before I was even interested in being a pastor. Uh, in fact, he's the one who got me to lead the mission trip where I met my wife, Jana. Uh, he made sure I got through seminary. He got me opportunities to speak at different events. He could see God's grace in me, and he encouraged me. Uh, he, he nurtured me. He fanned in the flame of ministry in my heart. He, it reminds me of Barnabas here. He's an encourager. He's a nurturer. He seeds God's grace in other people where, where others might just see all the problems and he encourages uh, he comes to this multicultural church and this church must have had serious problems it must have been a mess of immaturity right you've got I mean you've got these Jewish background believers 
they've got all their rules, their regulations, their, their very proud ethnic identity. Uh, and then you got, you're joining these people with these Greek-speaking Gentiles. They're from polytheistic, pagan backgrounds, totally different moral values. Uh, and all of them are living in Antioch. Okay, Antioch at the time, third largest uh, city in the Roman Empire, known for its ethnic diversity and its utter depravity. Uh, in fact, one Roman writer who wanted to describe, he was trying to describe growing moral corruption in Rome, and he referred to it as a river of wickedness flowing from Antioch that had flooded the city of Rome. That's how people viewed Antioch back then. So Barnabas could have walked into this young church with all those associations in mind. And just imagine where people were at, right? They got no teachers. They got no organization. No finished New Testament. Uh, many of them, no knowledge of the Old Testament. I bet there was all sorts of heresy going on. But, you know, Barnabas walks in and, you know, some of us, we would have only seen those problems, right? The sin, the, the associations with, with the wickedness of Antioch. Um, but Barnabas walks in and he sees grace. He sees the Lord at work. He's the right leader for this church. He, he sees God's grace, he rejoices, and then he exhorts them to stay faithful. This is what he does best. It's his gift. He encourages, and he uses it. Dear church, let me encourage you. God's grace is at work here his hand is moving. His, he acts on the earth, and the Lord Jesus is alive. He's present with us. He's given us grace, strength to fight on, strength to love each other, strength to forgive each other. Remain faithful to the Lord. Follow him, fight for him, love him with steadfast purpose, Barnabas says. And you know, I don't love the translation ESV chose here in verse 23. Barnabas is actually speaking to their hearts. He uses the word for heart. So instead of steadfast purpose, NIV is better, he encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Give your whole heart, your, the entirety of your being to Jesus. Don't you be half committed. Stop letting your heart look around at other things. Give your whole heart to the Lord. Ignoring all the other obvious problems that I'm sure were there, Barnabas starts with that, with their hearts, encouraging them, urging them, keep those hearts shackled to Christ. That's where he starts. And, and by the way, this verb, exhorted, uh, the verbal tense communicates ongoing action, something that keeps going. Barnabas keeps, he keeps doing this. And this is what we need in our church. We need to be encouragers, joyfully getting on each other's case to remain faithful to Jesus with all our hearts. Every day, I know, every day, fresh trials come, right? New things come around, new doubts. We, you know, things we thought we got rid of, they trickle back into our lives because the Christian life, it's a helical it's a helical thing. We're going somewhere. It's not an endless circle. We have an endpoint, but we're not always going up. Sometimes we're going down. You know this. You know this. But listen, 
the grace of God is operating within you. Don't you see it? Rejoice in it and exhort each other, encourage each other to remain faithful to the Lord with all your heart. Well, Barnabas doesn't just encourage this church, right? He sees that they need something more. They need to be taught. They need to be taught. People need more than encouragement to grow, right? They need nutrients. They need to be fed. Uh, the, if, if indeed, right, as we said earlier, if the goal of church leaders is to equip the saints for ministry and to grow them to maturity in their faith, Ephesians 4, 11 and following, and we looked at that last summer, then the primary task of your pastors is to feed the church with the words of God. Barnabas knew where to find the teacher. This church in Antioch needs. He met this guy eight to ten years ago who he thinks, you know, this guy would be the perfect fit for the first Jewish Gentile church in world history. And so he goes and he finds Saul and he brings him to this church. And they just, for a year, they just teach. They just teach these people. And as they grow, they're given a new name. And so this will be my fourth point, given a new name. Uh, we're told in verse 26 that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, so this church's witness to Christ is the origin of a name that 2.6 billion people now claim. What a legacy. Wow, how did they get this name? They didn't come up with it themselves. We're told here that uh, they were called Christians. It's a passive uh, verb there. And the other places we see this name in the New Testament is actually only used by unbelievers. It wasn't a word that believers at this time used for themselves. Uh, we see this outside the, old, uh, the New Testament as well. Um, Josephus, uh, Tacitus, and Pliny, these are all uh, first century non-Christian writers. They refer to Christians as, with that name as Christians. That's how they refer to them. So, why do people come up with a new name for someone when there's no name out there to describe them, right? There's, there's nothing else that they can use. They have to come up with a new one. I mean, they're not Jews. Uh, they, they have, there's, some of them are, but they're not, they're not Gentiles. I mean, what's, they're not Hellenists. Who are these people? Well, they keep talking about Christ. So let's call them Christians, which means uh, followers of Christ, or perhaps even little Christs. Little Christs. And, and notice that Luke tells us they were given this new name at the end of a year of teaching. They've grown. They've matured. Uh, even the name actually could indicate their growth. Because, you know, back in verse 20... They're talking about the Lord Jesus, right? Which, which would mean explaining a person. Here's this person named Jesus who did this. But here, after they've been taught, after this year of teaching, notice uh, they're not known by the name Jesus. They're not called Jesusites or something like that, but Christians. And to explain the name Christ, that would take a little more biblical knowledge, right? A little more theological depth. You got you to gotta get into some Old Testament prophecies. You got to talk about the, uh, the Jewish practice of anointing, right? That's what Christ means, anointed one. 
their practice of anointing kings, prophets, priests. They have grown into this name, right? They've been taught, and it's obvious to the people around them. They're hearing Christ, okay? Let's call them Christians. Praise the Lord for these believers. I mean, they are such a witness to us. They really are. And then immediately, what does Luke do? He gives us an example of what Christians look like, okay? And this proves, this proves their name. It proves their new identity. We see this in verses 27 to 30. God reveals to them through his spirit that their brothers and sisters in Judea are going to be in need. And what do they do? They respond to God's words. That's what Christians do. That's how they act. They respond to God's words. Even when it means sacrifice. They respond. They give, verse 29, says, according to their ability. Right? No one's forcing them to give a certain amount or even to give it all. It, it comes from their full-hearted, their whole hearts being committed, chained to Christ. Where there is famine, they seek to bring relief. This is a mini Christ activity. It marks them as Christians. Christ brought relief to the world's famine. For those who are spiritually hungry, Christ offers his words and even his own body to nurture, to sustain. You're partaking of his words right now as you listen to his word expounded to you. You will spiritually partake of his body in a few minutes as we, as we eat and drink the Lord's Supper. And those who find their rest and their relief in Christ display their identity by offering relief to one another. True communion with Christ flows directly into communion with his body. And in this incredible passage, we're seeing the first Jew-Gentile church, the first mixed church, grow to the point where it can offer relief to its mother church, the Jewish church, of Jerusalem. The, the ethnic boundaries of Babel are breaking down. They can't stand before the arrival of Christ's kingdom. The kingdom is breaking through, not by swords, but by little Christians loving like Christ did. And maybe the Turkish church we just sent financial relief to will one day care for us. And maybe the Christians that Caitlin is, is going to help in Peru, will one day send us their Barnabas, their best encourager, or their Saul, their best teacher. This is what a fruitful church looks like. Full of little Christs sacrificing like Christ did. Are you a little Christ given a new name Or are you trying to earn your name? 
Kent Hughes tells the story about a soldier in Alex the, you know, Alexander the Great's army. And this soldier was named after Alexander. But he gained a reputation in the army for being a great coward. And so at one point, the story goes, Alexander the Great calls this guy into his tent, and he asks him, is your name Alexander, and are you named after me? The guy, trembling, says, yes, sir. And the great general responds, then either be brave or change your name. Well, Christ is a great general. He's a, a greater general than Alexander. But listen, that is not how he acts towards those who bear his name. He doesn't hear from a distance that you have decided to follow Christ and call yourself a Christian or your parents brought you up as a Christian and then come to confront you on Sundays about how you better start living up to your name or lose it. No, he chose you to bear his name. His strong hand compelled you to come and is laid upon you even in your trouble. He sends his spirit to help you bear his name. He gives you faith to believe in his name. You are not simply a soldier in his army. You are a member of his family. You are the bride that he has committed to making beautiful and fruitful. So that relying on the hand of the Lord in your life, you can talk about Jesus. You can grow as you are fed by your leaders and you are given a new name as you live in communion with Christ and his Christians. And we will participate in that communion right now as we turn to the Lord's Supper, but first, let's pray. Dear Lord, Lord, we thank you for the powerful witness of the Church of Antioch. Lord, you worked through these people and it brings great glory to your name. They lifted the name of Christ before the world. May we not forget. They did so by the strength of your arm. We submit our own fruitfulness, our own witness to your hand as well. And we ask that you would commune with us through your son even now. So that resting in him, we would speak of him. We would grow, and we would be called his little Christs. Amen. So in just a few minutes, we're going to sing a hymn, one of my favorites. Uh, and the, the lyrics...